0: Season two of the mixtape with Scott. Before I introduce uh, to you my guest today, I'd like to read you those three sentences from Hold Me Tight Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love by Sue Johnson. We use stories to make sense of our lives. We use stories as models to guide us in the future. We shape stories and then stories shape us. As I've re- that's the end of that. So, as I've repeatedly said, uh, this is not your typical economics podcast. is not where you come to hear economists debate fiscal monetary policy or talk about projected inflation or output gaps. Rather, this is a podcast devoted to the personal story of economists, scientists, and authors. I do this podcast because I'm interested in the story of 20th and 21st century economics, um, but I'm also interested in the personal stories of 20th and 21st century economists. In fact, I feel like uh, you can't understand one without the other. Uh, I'm interested for their own sake. I, I love economics and I love economists and, and just I'm interested in the people who wrote the papers that I've read. Um, but I also want to meet these people. I want to hear their stories. And if I'm lucky through the connection, uh, like Sue Johnson said, maybe make sense of my own life and which doesn't always feel sensible and uh, navigate it a little bit better. So today I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Derek Neal, the William C. Norby professor in the economics department at uh, the University of Chicago. For those who don't know him, Derek has had an illustrious career as a labor economist studying things like education, wage gaps, mass incarceration, topics in personnel economics, and more than I can summarize. He's a superb, careful empiricist in the Chicago tradition whose papers will be read, I suspect, for a while for their insights uh, and what it tells us about American workers and American labor markets at this time in history. It was a wonderful opportunity to also just hear his personal story uh, and just be present with him. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mixtape with Scott. Uh, I'm your host,
1: Scott Cunningham.
0: Well, it is my pleasure to have on the podcast, uh, Dr. Derek Neal. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Glad to be here, Scott.
0: Can you tell us, for the sake of the audience, uh, I said your name, but you can tell me your name, uh, your job title, and and who your boss is?
1: Uh, my name is Derek Neal. I'm the William Norby Professor of Economics in the Ken Griffin Department of Economics at the University of Chicago. Um, and the closest thing I have to a boss is my wife, Cheryl Neal.
0: Cheryl Neal. Um, yeah. Deal. All right. Yeah, that covered all the bases. Good. All right. So here's an icebreaker question. Uh, What is one vacation that you took as a kid, good or bad, that to this day, you kind of still think about it every now and then?
1: We did. um, We did take a trip when I was a teenager uh, to the Smoky Mountains. Um, And we went because my dad uh family was having a family reunion and it for on his side of the family it was kind of a once in a decade or more event whereas we for years every june had gone to a family reunion on my mother's side and my dad was from a family where people were a little more educated than on my mom's side and my mom had been born uh, in this very rural area of Georgia, near the Georgia-Alabama line. And had he had always kind of teased her, you know, about being from the backside of nowhere, you know, <laughs> where the road ended. Um, and then we saw this little cabin hanging off a mountain in the Smokies where he was born. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> And, and we, you know, we gave him grief about, you know, you all of this stuff about kid and mom about being from the backside of nowhere has to stop <laughs> <laughs> because this, this is as close to the falling off point as you can get, you know.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, man. Okay, great. All right, perfect. That's hilarious. So uh, w- so where'd you grow up anyway? You grew up in the South, but where was it?
1: I grew up in a little town in Georgia, huh. uh, LaGrange, Georgia. If you take I-85 and head Southwest out of Atlanta towards Auburn, mm. uh, it's three waffle houses before the Alabama line. <laughs> so that's the <laughs> that's how you find it that's how you find my house my mom's house if you,
0: if you get if you hit the fourth waffle house you've gone too far you need to go back that's no right. no
1: you haven't it's three waffle houses from the alabama line
0: oh okay all if right you, yeah
1: if you if you go to the if you get off at the fourth waffle house you're in alabama off, you've gotten off one exit too early
0: Oh, too early. Got it. All there, right. there, yeah.
1: There's 13 exits between Atlanta and the Alabama line, and 12 have a Waffle House. <laughs>
0: okay, that's awesome. Great. All right. So so what did your what did your mom and dad what did your parents do for a living in, in that? So how it was what was the town again? Laverne? What'd you say Lagrange. Was like? Lagrange. Okay.
1: What so they do? My t- dad, my dad was the guy um that would um you know, in little small towns in the South in the 60s and the 70s, and well into the 80s, Sears had catalog stores. And it was the original Amazon.com or
2: mm-hmm.
1: the original, you know, Amazon uh, market, because they had a few things in the catalog store, like lawnmowers and appliances that you could buy on the spot. Mm -hmm. everything else you ordered out of the catalog and then you came and had it picked up or it was delivered. And one of the things that you could do through the catalog service was you could have your house remodeled. And so if you wanted new kitchen cabinets or you wanted a fence in the backyard or a new roof, my dad came to your house and he did all the measurements and worked up an estimate. If you said yes, then Sears remodeled your house with Sears parts and subcontractors that my dad arranged, and he got a commission if there was a profit, um, and uh, that, was, that was what he did for about mm. over 35 years.
2: Hmm.
1: Mm. My mom was originally a clerk and then an office manager for Metropolitan Life. Mm. So they they both worked for these two really large companies um, that, you know, dominated their industries when I was a kid and then declined over time.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Did they end up staying in that town after, you know, are they still there now?
1: Uh, my dad passed away oh. about seven years ago. Okay. Um, and my mom still lives there.
0: Oh, okay. Is it the same town when you go back? Does it feel familiar? Does it feel kind of different?
1: Uh, They built a Kia plant like 10 miles away about 10 years ago. Uh And that uh, really changed uh, the feel of downtown. Mm. So I could take you to some of the restaurants in downtown now and, you know, blindfold you, drop you in there, and then take the blindfold off and tell you, that we were in some kind of hipster bistro on the north side of Chicago. And you'd believe me. <laughs> so it wasn't like, Where, the- whereas, whereas there were no places like that at all before the key. Up right.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah. If I, you had done that to me, it'd have been like the, it'd been like the Sonic or something. As a kid. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, so, so if I could talk to your teachers in middle school, um, how would some of them have described you? Maybe like a couple of them. What would they what would they have said about Derek Neal like in the 6th or 7th grade? Uh troubled. Troubled or trouble? Both. Really? What what what, what kind of description? I
1: was uh I was very hyperactive um and uh very undisciplined. I wasn't mm. mean. I wasn't getting in trouble for fighting and stuff like that, but i got gotten mm. a lot of trouble for, you know, just being, uh, unfocused on what I was supposed to do, talking when I wasn't supposed to talk, mm. being in the place I wasn't supposed to be. Um, not, uh, I don't think there was any kind of belligerence to it. It wasn't a matter of intentionally choosing to rebel,
0: uh-huh. uh,
1: but there were serious impulse control problems for me uh, well into the early high school years.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think that was about? You, I mean, not to be offended, but that sounds like attention deficit disorder or something like that.
1: I have no idea. Huh? I, I really don't have any idea what caused it. Um, I'm very thankful um, that I had parents that always communicated, A, we expect you to get better. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get in trouble if if you don't work hard at getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, but B, um, we love you and this is going to work out. Yeah. I mean, mm. there was never especially for my dad, there was never anything but quiet confidence.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's so in high school, did it was it was it still like that in high school? Did you find yourself being pretty hyperactive
1: it, it, didn't tell it, in high school? It, uh, it gradually got better over time. Yeah. Uh but it was probably my senior year before um kind of there were no issues kind of socially with other kids in terms of being picked on or stuff and hmm. and no issues with you know teachers being aggravated by my kind of uh, lack of having it together,
0: right, huh. So was it disrupting your schooling? Were you, uh, how were your grades like?
1: Oh, I, um, I didn't have the grades that I should have had, but, um, especially by high school, um, I had things under control enough that, you know, I would have had, you know, what people would have called good grades.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So was it masking a little bit of your, your skill? The you think your teachers could you think your teachers could like this separate the signal from the noise a little bit at all?
1: Um, you know, my mom keeps everything. Uh huh. And I found uh I found like when my dad died, we were helping her go through stuff and I found some old report cards. Uh And I was shocked by two things. Uh, One was before high school, before I started to calm down a little bit, I didn't remember, you know, how many B's I got. Mm. Um, uh, But the second thing was uh, in the younger report cards, I was kind of shocked by the ubiquity of, you know, he's really he's really smart he can do better than this. We've, you know, we got to find some way to, to just get him to focus.
0: <laughs> oh, they could tell.
1: Well, the, 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 the teachers all thought that, you know, when I was in elementary school that, you know, I was much better than my academic record and that, you know, I need, I needed, I mean, if this was a long time ago, I mean, I'm almost 60, I think there's some chance that rather than just everybody sticking with me and letting me work it through it, I'd be, I would have been heavily medicated yeah. if I had been born in 2013 rather than 1963. Yep. Yep. Totally. For, totally. for good or for ill, Right.
0: Right. Right. So, well, did you ever think, did you ever have Yeah. Uh, you know, so when you were nearing the end of high school, And you kind of saw a future for yourself. Uh, What were you sort of envisioning that you would like your future to be?
1: Well, I had a job at my first real job, you know, where you have a social security number, was pumping gas. Mm. And I would pump gas three days a week and then uh, umpire Little League baseball at night. Mm. And I lost that job during the summer of 1980 when uh, gas prices went from $1 to one twenty-five. And then I had the audacity to walk into a little uh, news radio station that uh, we were the county seat. And even though there was only about, you know, 30,000 people in LaGrange, there were probably 60,000 people in the listening area of this little one news radio station, mm-hmm. and that was in a time when local news was a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. And I was the uh, editor of the small school newspaper that maybe came out twice a year. Mm-hmm. And I walked in and had the audacity to tell these guys to hire me as a news reporter after I got fired from pumping gas. Uh huh. And uh. I had to spend about six months with a reel-to-reel tape recorder uh, because even in small towns in the South, they want you to sound like you're from the Midwest if you're going to read the news. Yeah. So it took me a long time with a reel-to-reel tape recorder to become, Hi, I'm Derek Neal, WGRP News. (laughs) And once I got that, they put me on the air on the weekends doing the news and sending me to police stations. And then in the summers, I would cover murder trials because I was minimum wage labor and they wanted someone, you know, there was like five, six murder trials a year in this, in this county. And they wanted somebody giving a report on the evening radio news when people were driving home about what happened in the murder trial. Yeah. And the guy that ran the radio station had been going to law school at night and he was becoming a lawyer, and so I got very interested in courts and had a lot of fun, and so I was going to go to college and then go to University of Georgia Law School. That was my plan.
0: Mm. Well, was that where you got interested in economics?
1: Yeah, I um, was forced to take um, these distribution requirements that most colleges force you to take. And so, you know, I had been in this uh, first group in my high school that was supposed to, you know, take a higher level of math and then, you know, take calculus before you went to college and had dropped out of that in 10th grade telling my parents I was going to be a writer. Hmm. And my parents were loving, wonderful people. And they made huge sacrifices for me. Uh, And they were great parents. They weren't... uh, you know, terribly uh, well-educated. My dad had gotten a four-year degree at a night school. It was an extension campus of the University of Georgia um, and was the first to graduate from college in his family. My mom was the first to graduate high school in her family. And so they didn't really, you know, they didn't really know enough to say, no, you know, you don't know what you're going to do. Stay in the higher math track. And so I showed up uh, to college thinking I was going to be a history major and go to law school Mm. and was very happy doing that. And then I uh, had to take principles of econ Mm. and about three weeks in, uh, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, that if I could make up the math deficits, Mm. and actually make it through grad school, this is what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, Wait, so what,
0: you were a freshman or a sophomore?
1: I was a sophomore. Um, I had a late birthday, so I started college early. I was was 18 years old when I started this class.
0: Do you remember that professor's name?
1: His name was Larry Wolfenbarger.
0: Uh Huh. What, so, what do you think left? What was it about that class? What is what, what what was it that was hitting you so hard?
1: Uh, I found the idea that you could write down formal models of human behavior, and that they would have tangible, testable implications. So that you could do something like science and don't get me wrong. I know we're not real scientists, but that you could do something that had the feel of science, but you were studying human interactions. Yeah. I found that fascinating. Mm. And also, you know, this was not, uh, this was not, uh, MIT. Yeah. Uh, so I was used to uh you know getting A's in almost every class I took. Right. Um but uh when I took econ classes, the the two economists they had um you know really taught respectable economics classes yeah even though it was you kind of a a mid-level group of students and so it would typically you know be be like a lot of classes i've taught over the years where the median grade was a 55 right and very few people made over like you know 85 yeah but when i took these classes I kept getting 98s on every test, and the mm. next, and it'd be 50 people in the class, and the next person down, uh, you like know, big drop. A, a standard deviation and a half below. Yeah. And so here was something I was fascinated by. Yeah. And in terms of comparative advantage, in terms of relative to the other people I, you know, knew in this little environment. I was much better at this than anything I had ever done in my life.
2: Mm, mm.
1: And the year that I took this class, Mm. they had one endowed chair that was really well funded in the whole college. Um, And they gave it to a guy who had gotten his PhD at Cornell in had written in social choice and was a real math econ guy. Oh, he He was an economist? Yeah, he had gone to Kentucky. He hadn't gotten tenure, uh, but he had won a lot of teaching awards, and they gave him this well-funded chair where he was making probably 50% more than anybody else in the college. Mm. And he out of the goodness of his heart, basically offered to teach me independent study classes in the summer to try to get me ready for grad school, because this small college did not offer the classes that you would need to take. There was no analysis class. Yeah. Uh, There was no uh, kind of wait. So he's
0: teaching your math class. He's teaching your analysis.
1: No, no. He, but he taught me, uh kind of math for economists yeah out of Chang, Chang and yeah. econometrics out of Johnston uh uh-huh. uh in the summer between my junior and senior year to try wow. to get me coached up because there was also no uh vector calculus class to take. Wow and so um how yeah, much that guy
0: if that guy I got in tenure at Kentucky he wouldn't even be here
1: no no uh, Greg Richardson was his name huh. Super smart guy, um, just wasn't kind of emotionally ready for the publisher parish stuff of yeah. tenure. He had graduated, he'd gotten his PhD very young. He had started Cornell when he was 16. and and, um, and he just, you know, he was a super smart guy but had just not done well with responding to the criticism and referee reports. Yeah. And um, and he just invested his self, his energies in me having a chance. Wow. And I never will forget, but I graduated. I, I was shaking hands with him at graduation. And he said, uh, <laughs> You know you may have the best economic intuition of any student I've ever taught. Um, mm. your math skills are still bad and I, think, <laughs> and I think you're probably going to flunk out of grad school, but I really hope you don't.
0: That's great, <laughs>
1: and, you know, and you know the the first class at Virginia, yeah. That was a hurdle. The first semester, there was this math stats class. Yeah. And it got more people than the core exams. Every year they would lose a third of people of the class because if you didn't pass this math stats class, yeah, which was just how fast can I guess the trick to the integration <laughs> problem, then you were off track to actually take the core exams on time. And so I showed up with 16 people in the fall of 1985 yeah at the end of that semester there were nine of us left uh-huh and so that on that yellow uh piece of uh you know legal pad that posted the grades on the doors yeah there were nine names and there was a big black line or there was nine student id numbers uh-huh. final grades and a big black line and then there were seven yeah and my student ID and my forty-three average for the class were sitting right on top of the black oh, line. I was man, the lowest have... grade, and <laughs> and I I never had a problem after that. After that, it was about economics rather than just you know how fast you can crunch through the math problems. Yeah, and and I was never in real danger after that. Yeah. But you know, people might laugh at this uh this faculty advisor from undergrad that said I still don't think you're going to make it. Yeah. Uh but you know, he was only this far from yeah, being was, right. <laughs> that's
0: right. He was was a pretty good guess. Yeah. Plus or minus a little a point and he got it right. Yeah. That's uh that's amazing. So So, so you, 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 you survive at Virginia, uh, um, uh, which, which professors there looking back, you know, do you, do you think had sort of a, you know, made the biggest difference on, on you, uh, on the trajectory you went on?
1: Well, Bill Johnson is an incredibly broad and clear thinking economist. Mm. He understands kind of the basic models in labor, in IO, in public um, growth theory, et cetera. And so he, he kind of set this example of you really want to understand the canonical models and economics and how they work. Now, I didn't actually accomplish that at Virginia. I had a lot to learn when I got here, mm. but he kind of set this um he kind of set this model of learn how to think like an economist. Mm. Steve Stern also um invested an incredible amount of time in my training and career mm. and he really stressed. Um if you're going to estimate something, if you're going to write down an, an econometric model, um let's be careful about tying the economic model you wrote down to the empirical model you're estimating. Right. And let's the he was very good on forcing people to be very precise about why is this empirical method actually a test of that model explicitly or the implications of the model? Mm -hmm. And then I would say Ed Olson. Uh, Ed Olson was an incredible uh, mentor in that he really stressed Clarity. Mm. I mean, if you gave if you gave Ed a copy of something you wrote, mm. it was going to come back filled with red ink that was basically going to ask, not only isn't there a better and more economical way to write this, but isn't there a way to write this that's more accurate where you're really saying exactly what you mean? Yeah. And I think one of the huge failures in modern graduate training now is that most people interact with their advisors through looking at slide decks for presentations. And there are just not that many advisors who say, write the whole thing out, give it to me. I'm going to read it carefully and give it back to you with comments on every page. And I try to do that Mm. Um, because I really believe it's important. Uh, Nobody gets their slides published. Right. Uh, And at the end of the day, um, uh, my colleague here, Fernando Alvarez, uh, quotes one of his favorite writers who once said, uh, writing is God's gift to us so that we know how sloppy our thinking is. (laughs) And... And I really believe that we do our students a great service if we really invest in helping them write clearly.
0: Yeah. 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 Hmm. Let me ask something. So yeah, on, on the website Reddit, there's these subreddits, which are like these little websites within the website. And there's this one called explain to me like I'm five where you can ask these people on the subreddit, you know, a question that you think is really hard, but you know that if you just ask them to explain it, you still wouldn't even understand the answer. So then you say, well, explain to me like I'm five. So this is what I want to know. Explain to me like I'm five. Why are you a labor economist? Why aren't you a macro economist or a health economist?
1: Uh, when I was in grad school, Um, there's no way in the world that I had the math background to actually be successful working in a field like macro. Mm. Okay? Um, Grad school would have taken longer. Um, The second thing is macro has never been because the data is just not there. Mm -hmm. Macro has never been um, as fully part of this paradigm that I talked about that got me excited when I was younger of here's a model, let's test it. Right. And so I went to grad school expecting to choose among the applied micro fields. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I took IO and I took labor
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I thought IO was a hot mess. I mean, there was a, there was just a lot of running bad regressions in 1985. Right. And they weren't making a lot of progress on really finding ways to estimate things that fully reflected what was in the models, right now, uh, 1985 was probably still before we saw a lot of progress uh, that we would now think of and related to causal inference. Yeah, but there were a lot of people uh, in the 80s who were thinking seriously about let's model where the sources of unobserved heterogeneity are. Mm. Let's be very careful about the assumptions that we're making to get identification. Let's model the selection process, and you might have had to to lean on parametric assumptions to get things done. But people were taking the causal questions in labor much more seriously than they were in IO. Yeah, and that yeah. was how I ended up in labor.
0: Mm. Mm. So, um. So you end up in Chicago. You leave Virginia and get a job in Chicago. That that what did that feel like? Getting that getting that offer from Chicago.
1: Well, <clears throat> so you got to remember. I I don't. How old are you, Scott?
0: Forty seven.
1: Okay, you don't remember. So so when you applied for a job in those days, the students didn't have email accounts, right? And not and not all the faculty at every university had email accounts. So when you applied for a job you paid $13 to copy three papers and then ship them by FedEx. Yeah. Okay. And so I had taken the job openings for economists and I had found like 137 places to apply to. Oh my gosh. it It was a recession and I'm coming out of Virginia and I had just gotten married a few months before And I was not going to be the son-in-law that was a freeloader and grad student who didn't get a job. And so Chicago did not advertise that fall. They got a uh, permission to hire very late in the process. And I gave my wife the 137 and I said, right now, scratch off the places you don't want to live. And she scratched off Columbia, NYU, and Fordham, said she didn't want to live in a dangerous city. Okay. And so I sent out the applications. Hmm. And a few weeks later, I'm standing in Bill Johnson's office, and Bill answers the phone and he says, Okay, I'll tell him. And he says, Send your packet to Chicago. And so. Um, I sent my stuff to Chicago. I had already applied to the Harris School. Mm. And um, I interviewed with Gary Becker and Sherwin Rosen and John Cochran Mm. in the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. This was back between when the meetings were between Christmas and New Year's. Hmm. And on January 3rd, I came out to Chicago and gave a job talk and visited Harris and the department. And on January 10th, Chicago made me an offer. Wow. And I canceled the 16 campus visits that I had set up at places like the University of Georgia and uh, I can't even remember maybe Kentucky was one of the you know, yeah. places and, and, and University of Georgia was one of the better ones. I mean, it was like yeah. Indiana state, you know, places like that.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, uh, um, what was the, who were your champions you think in that that, that were just like, we got to have him.
1: Um, I, I couldn't answer that question. Um, I know that after I got here, um, I was treated incredibly well, Hmm. uh, by the senior faculty Hmm. and, uh, Sherwin Rosen, uh, uh, from, from that day, um, that he called and made me the offer uh, until he died, treated me like I was his son. He Uh, was one
0: of your closest uh, colleagues.
1: I've never had anyone that I've had a lot of great colleagues. Yeah. I've never had anyone that uh, invested more in me than Sherwin did.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I'd be curious a little bit about that relationship. I mean, um, what 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 was what what was the investments you think that has made you different? What what was he what was he doing, and how are you different? You think?
1: So back then, the only place to eat lunch on campus really was the faculty club. Right. All of the places that we have now, where you could go and eat lunch, didn't exist really. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few sandwich shops that were overrun with students and then there was the student dining halls. and so every day there was a there was a table that was reserved for lunch uh, yeah. at the quad club for some workshop and mm-hmm. you know now we have things catered and you go to the workshops at lunch and you eat while you listen to the paper then uh, there was this tradition of everybody reading the papers before the workshops. And so people would have read the papers. You would go to lunch and discuss the paper. Mm. And then at three, you'd go to the workshops. And I uh, uh, got here in August and the only place to eat was this was school wasn't until October. The only place to eat was the quad club. And I went in and kind of sat by myself in the back because I really, you know, I didn't want to go join anyone else's lunch table. And Sherwin saw me over in the corner. He was sitting at a table that Mert Miller kind of held court at. And he walked over and said, what are you doing? You're supposed to eat with us. And that began a a thing where he basically it was kind of a de facto thing that I was expected to walk by his office and go to lunch with him every day. Mm. And I sat beside him and lunch in those days was, you talked about economics the whole time. Yeah. You might talk about the paper or it might go off into some other area of economics. And the people at that table, uh, could all kind of solve the canonical models in public and trade and IO and labor in their head. And so the, the conversation would just go all over the place. Right. And I would not understand a lot of stuff. And then uh, on the way back, or sometimes during lunch, I would ask Sherwin, what are we talking about? And he would take me back to his office. He had this antechamber in an old building where, it was set up where your secretary had an office outside your office. Uh-huh. If you were like a a full professor, and he had taken that area and turned it into a library, and he had hundreds of econ books, uh-huh. and he would go in, and he'd pull off a book, and he'd say, "Read this, and we'll talk about it." Mm. Um, and uh, you know, I remember I spoke at his memorial service, and I told people. The, the most memorable thing that ever happened to me as a new assistant professor, I was sitting there one day when we got there early. Nobody else was there, just Sherwin and I. Yeah. And I felt his hand on my knee and I looked and he said, Derek, I just want to tell you that we're all really glad you're here. You fit in.
0: Hmm. How'd that make you feel?
1: Unbelievable, because I had come from this kind of middle rank PhD program
2: mm.
1: to, at that time, by far the best group of labor economists in the world. You had Murphy, Heckman, Becker, Rosen, Lazier, Tappel, Bob Willis, Joe Hutt, you know, Bob yeah. Lalonde, Canis Prendergast. I mean, it was it was an incredible lineup yeah and every day I felt like, Oh boy, have they messed up <laughs> sure and and Sherwin had this this social awareness and also this kindness, yeah, where he told me exactly what I needed to hear most
0: mm. Mm. wow, wow that's a that's a beautiful story he He sounds amazing. Uh that was really for I bet you feel fortunate you've you got to cross paths with him and be be close with him like that.
1: Yeah, I it's it's bittersweet. Um because uh you know I got the offer to come back from Wisconsin to Chicago uh just a few weeks after he passed away. Mm. And and um uh and i came back and my office was his old office and so and 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 you can never prove it uh but there's a good chance that if he hadn't suddenly gotten ill and passed away you know they might not have said you know we're, we're getting old in labor. We've got to make more kind of senior hires at this young level.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so you never know. Right. Uh, but it was always a, um, I mean I would have much rather, uh, stayed at Wisconsin my whole career and had Sherwin live to be 85.
0: Mm. How old did he live to?
1: He was sixty three when he passed away in two
0: thousand one. Oh, wow, wow. Was he chair when he passed away?
1: No, he was chair when he hired me.
0: He was chair when he hired you. It was just a sudden descent in his health.
1: He had lung cancer, and they oh. found it, and oh, gosh. it was it. He died very quickly.
0: Oh, I bet the department was heartbroken. So. Oh. You know, um, I grew up in Mississippi, and uh, so I've always been interested in, when I I wrote my dissertation about uh, racial imbalances in the sex ratio because of the mass incarceration, and I, I wrote about it for a bunch of reasons, but part of it was I just kind of felt like studying race just felt like something I at least kind of just you know at least sort of understood a little bit enough like you know i, w- I didn't feel comfortable studying something in another country you know like like that i, d- I just felt like it would have just been too exotic and i would have not been able to do it and you've written a lot of topics in race also going all the way back i'm guessing to graduate school what was it no, that drew you to no, that no. oh not in graduate school i no. thought this jp was about i thought your black white wage differences was from grad school okay so no, you didn't what'd you write in grad school what was your dissertation about?
1: My dissertation was uh, when I was in grad school. The hottest thing since sliced bread was efficiency wages. Oh, and I and,
0: and you never hear about that anymore.
1: And Gibbons and Katz wrote a paper they published in 1992 in the Review of Economic Studies. Uh huh. That claimed, uh that there was no one model that would explain all the patterns in the displaced worker data, specifically why the people displaced from the high wage industries uh, were people who had the longest tenure and took the biggest wage hits, but were also the people that had the highest wage levels after they were displaced. Uh-huh. And I wrote a simple applied theory paper that was later paired with a lot of empirical work mm. that turned into this 1995 paper I have on industry specific capital and displaced workers.
0: Yeah, okay, okay.
1: And then oh, and jolly, okay. Uh, the the actual uh applied theory paper plus the empirical work that went with it didn't get published until 1998 because by the time I had it ready to go, people were bored with efficiency wages. Mm. But it's published in uh, the Journal of Human Resources in 1998. It's called The Link Between Ability and Specialization. Mm-hmm. And so I was working on uh, this literature to tried to understand how ex-post rents could be created through investment and sorting into jobs. And you could get patterns that look like market inefficiencies or ex anti rents, but there was really no um, there was really no rationing of good jobs in the labor market. It mm-hmm. was that if you have sorting and investment, you're always going to have ex post rents um that create uh, wage gaps that are the difference between inside and outside wages. And those are going to be bigger for able people who've sorted to specialized jobs. Mm. And so that was what I was doing.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: When I got to Chicago, Jim Heckman was also very kind to me. And I started attending a workshop. He ran on education um, with James Coleman, the famous sociologist.
0: Yeah. Social capital guy.
1: And I uh, had an idea based on stuff that I saw in that workshop about what was wrong with the Catholic schooling literature. And I Uh, started working on that project. mm. And that paper came out after the Black-White wage gap paper, but it was written well before Okay. And it just had bad luck with getting a, an editor who was changing universities. Oh. Um, and so when I was doing a bunch of quality checks on the data set for the Catholic schooling paper, yeah, where you run regressions that you think you should know the answer, right? Do cross tabs because you're looking for evidence in the descriptive statistics and the patterns and the data. That maybe you created something wrong. Right, right. I stumbled across the results that are in that uh, 1996 pre-market skills paper. Yeah. And
0: What was that for the reader's sake, for the listener? What was it you saw?
1: I saw that uh, you didn't need education, that this one AFQT measure was Mm. just doing... Uh, a lot of explaining, not all, but explaining a big portion of uh, the black-white wage gap among men in their late 20s. Mm. And Bill Johnson had been chair at Virginia, and he was visiting Chicago for one quarter. Mm. And I went down the hall and I said, Bill, you write fast and you write very well, and um, I've got these results. I want you to write the first draft so that we can get a working paper, you know, out there before somebody else stumbles across this.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then at the end of the quarter, uh, he went uh, back to Virginia. Mm. And, you know, this was before you had Dropbox and before you had Zoom or even Skype. And so um, I worked on it an awful lot. And then we would swap uh, uh, drafts back and forth. And then he asked to be the person that submitted it to journals and uh when he did that without telling me, he, he, uh, he changed the ordering of our names because he said that, you know, I had, I had started the project and, and, you know, Oh, it's not in
0: alphabetical of, order.
1: It's yeah, he, Johnson. He, he said, he said, look, I wrote the first draft, but you did everything else and you should, uh, you should get credit for this. Yeah. And so a lot of people think that because he switched the order that I must have done this in grad school and, and nothing could be further from the truth. This whole thing was just an accident. Um, I discovered this pattern, not having any intention of ever working on black, white labor market stuff but trying to make sure there weren't any programming errors in my Catholic schooling paper.
0: That is fascinating.
1: And then Bill happened to be visiting Chicago at the time. And he is an incredibly good writer. Mm. And at that time, and he was incredibly fast at, at getting a good first draft. And at that time I was at best a mediocre writer and i was slow and i was scared to death that someone was going to find this set of results i had put together uh before i could get a paper together
0: yeah yeah
1: because it was just it was a 20 dollar bill laying on the sidewalk and i think the the other thing was since the day i had shown up at chicago Sherwin, also Gary, but Sherwin and Jim especially had kind of beaten through my head. Think about the world through the lens of Ben Perath. Mm. Okay. And so that was the lens that I used to write the paper.
0: Hey, what does that and mean? I, said, so what do, I, know, I know, I don't know what they mean when they say that.
1: So, you know, Ben Perath wrote this 1967 paper on life cycle human capital accumulation as an optimal control problem. Uh And the early literature kind of thinks about individual heterogeneity as differences in the initial skill level that you bring to adulthood. But that's Mm. really the wrong way to think about it.
2: Mm. If you don't
1: take logs before you start, you can't get the model to fit the data that way. Mm. And nobody gets nobody gets paid in log marginal products. Wages equal (laughs) marginal product of labor. But if you say, hey, this scale parameter on the front of the human capital production function, this scale parameter really tells you how efficient you are as a learner. Yeah. And now let's see what that will do as a source of heterogeneity. Yeah. Then you can take... You know, a few minutes with MATLAB and just by hand, you can create lifecycle earnings profiles for different uh, education groups, taking the other parameters out of the literature and just by hand, spacing apart the different learning efficiencies. You can create profiles that look very much like the data. Mm. And so... That was the lens through which I wrote this paper that said, if you really want to test for the existence of labor market discrimination given skill, you want it to be skill that exists before people enter the labor market. Because if you wait until after they enter the labor market, well then two people that brought the same amount of skill could end up in different places because there was some discrimination barrier that prevented one group from investing in efficient ways using their skill. And so the the way that would be most faithful to Ben Parath is to get the skill early and then look out past the crossover point, past the place where more educated people start, you know, earning more than less educated people yeah. and look to see how that initial condition that's a proxy for your learning efficiency would explain or not explain uh racial wage gaps uh at that point in the life cycle. Mm. And so it you know it was all it was all luck. Huh. Um, I found the result by uh, trying to check programming errors for trying to check for programming errors in another paper. Yeah, I was able to get the first draft written quickly because Bill agreed to write it for me. Right, and I had the right paradigm when we started working and polishing, I had the right paradigm to frame the results because Sherwin and Jim had beaten into my head, Mm. uh, for two or three years. Mm. Think about Ben Perath. Think about Ben Perath. Think about Ben Perath.
0: Mm. Wow. That's crazy. The way you're telling your story, there's, you're telling your story, like there's been a lot of, fortuitous of events this guy this guy at your college and and uh and then this and meeting meeting Sherwin the way he was it, it it seems like you at least tell your story like you've been very lucky
1: I my my dad was the son of a Methodist minister mm-hmm. uh, he would be he would be very uh disappointed if I said yes to that Because Uh he would want me to say that I have been blessed. Yeah. Uh, And and I really do believe that my life is just one big sequence of unmerited favor. Yeah. Uh, There's been a lot of grace in my life that I didn't earn. I mean, Mm. and it starts with my dad. Mm. I mean, very few people in the world have ever had a father that regardless of what was going on was better at communicating. I love you. I believe in you. It's going to be okay. Yeah. And you know, if you have that when you're growing up and then you get to a situation where you say, I really love economics. I would love to try to do this as a profession,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I've never met anyone before I came to college that had a PhD. I don't have hardly anyone in my family that ever got a lot of formal education. I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. Reaching the place where you can say, I'm going to go for it anyway. And if they tell me I'm too stupid and they send me home, it's okay. Being able to have that thought process starts with having a dad that says, I believe in you. I love you. It's going to be all right. Mm. And, and I always knew that if I had been below that line at Virginia and got you know, flunked out of grad school and got sent home, they would have, my mom would have been happy because I would have been living closer to home, (laughs) but there would have never been anything, but we love you. We're proud of you.
0: Mm. That's really, that's, 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 uh, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful blessing.
1: Yeah. And, and for some reason that I never understood you know, Sherwin, Jim, and Gary, but especially Sherwin, uh, they all thought uh, that I had potential that I didn't see in myself
2: mm.
0: Mm. And they
1: treated me as if they expected uh, they expected that I had a shot
0: well, Derek, it's top of the hour. I just have so thoroughly enjoyed uh this conversation I, I appreciate you uh uh i appreciate you sharing with me everything appreciating that you know knowing a little more about you i feel so glad you're in the profession and uh, uh really thank you for your I, I thank you so much for this conversation it's meant a lot to me
1: well i appreciate having the chance to talk to you scott
0: <laughs> all right well you have a nice night
1: all right. Next time I make it down to Baylor, you can you can buy the brisket. That's a
0: deal. All right. All right. I'm a, I'm a hold, uh, you can hold me to that. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Gotta see us soon. How do you need me?